Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Most of which we cannot resolve in the moment, right? These are issues that are being brought to us by other people, people we know that we can't solve right now. The question is too big. It's ambiguous. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just checking my inbox because I'm in the middle of a conversation. You know, Srini and I are going back and forth about uh, whatever scheduling on podcast. I'm just checking that, but I'm seeing all these other messages. And then you turn your attention back to what you were doing, having mm-hmm. exposed yourself to all of these unresolved tasks that are waiting there and connected to people who need things from you. And your brain goes haywire because when it sees all these messages, it begins the process of, okay, we have to, uh, switch our context. We have to begin suppressing these networks and amplifying these networks to get ready to deal with these new things. And halfway through that process, you bring your attention back to the thing you're writing or the code you're trying to type up or whatever it is. And your brain is now in a uh, cognitive catastrophe of crossed wires and aborted context shifts. It makes it incredibly hard to think. It also exhausts us. It's not a failure of will. You literally tired out your mind. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Doing creative work can be kind of lonely, and that's why we built the Unmistakable Listener Tribe. The tribe is a community for professionals to connect and support each other. Everything is designed to help you grow your business and share what's working and what isn't. And that's true whether you're a business owner or an artist. You'll get access to feedback, live conversations with guests, and so much more. By joining the tribe, you become part of a community of creators who all support each other, and it's completely free. Hopefully, I'll see you there. Visit unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe to join. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Cal, welcome back to the Unmistakable Creative for what probably is the fourth or fifth time. Uh, yes, it's it's always glad to be back. I get I get lonely when too much time goes by without having a chance to chat with you. Maybe that's why I, I write books. <laughs> Just so you can, you can talk. Yes. Well, I, Hey, I, to me that that's great because I love your books. I'm always happy when you have a new one and I'm always like, Oh, when's the next one coming out? So you have a new book out called a world without email, all of which we will get into. But as you know, from previous experience, we're not going to start by talking about that. And I was thinking about where to start with this one because I've asked you things about your childhood. I'd asked you about your parents in previous interviews. So I realized there was one area that I hadn't hit. And this is one that I do want to know about. I know part of the answer to this question. But um, do you have siblings? Uh, if so, what birth order were you and what impact did that end up having on uh, what you've ended up doing with your life? Oh, birth order. That's interesting. Uh, I have three siblings. I have three. So I'm one of four and I'm the second. So I'm not sure. What does that signify? Is that uh, <laughs> a, a natural skepticism of technology? Is that the, uh, the, the cliche of, of two out of four? Um, so, yeah, I had a whole mess of siblings, I would say. I guess that's that's one way of thinking about it. Um, so what should I be thinking about here? I don't know. So you're, you're wondering if that might have affected being in the middle, basically. Like, what's the yeah, impact I mean, of being in the middle? Well, there's both. I mean, you know, like looking at sort of what you pick up from older siblings, I think that to me, the contrast, it, having had only one where I'm the older, when I look at sort of, you know, what my parents taught her versus what they taught me, 
Um, it evolved partially because, you know, they were immigrants and I was the experiment in which they were like, we don't know what the hell we're doing um, in a new country. And she was the one who benefited from all their screw ups on me. Uh, so I always wonder about, particularly if you're not the oldest, like what, you know, kinds of lessons your parents taught each of you. And, you know, how is it that how the trajectories of your lives differed? Well, I mean, I think one thing for sure that was probably important is because I had a bunch of siblings and I was relatively low maintenance, right? So uh, I didn't I didn't generate acute concerns that needed parental attention. Uh, so there's a lot of busyness going on of just trying to keep up with my various siblings and various things they needed or various issues they were having. And as a result, I had a ton of autonomy, which probably was pretty influential. So I did not have a, a setup where maybe if you're an only child where there's a helicopter parent like, what are you working on? What are your grades? What are you? I was basically a free agent. I, I think they they vaguely um, they vaguely knew my grades, but not really. Uh, there's a couple of basic rules, like you have to do a sport and you have to do an instrument, uh, so that you learn a little discipline. But that was basically it. By the time I was 16, I had started my own company, was you know traveling around, had bank accounts, was doing five figure uh, contracts with companies, and they all just kind of vaguely knew what was going on because you know I wasn't. I was low maintenance and there's a lot of other mm. things demanding their attention. That sense of autonomy, which I felt really strongly, you know, uh, growing up as a teenager, that probably was, I'm going to guess that's very positive. Like that probably explains why, you know, when I get to college pretty soon, I, I get a book deal or I become, you know, the editor of the humor magazine at the college or that I, because it just had the sense of, I felt very autonomous. I can figure things out. Um, I, I can be independent. And so maybe yeah. there's something there, right? Maybe there's maybe my independent streak in my thinking goes back to the autonomy that I was given growing up. Yeah. I mean, what about your siblings? Like, did they, how have their careers turned out differently than yours? Because um, the thing that strikes me that's so funny about this is that, you know, they didn't ask about your grades or any of this stuff yet. I know this from having read your books. You went to MIT. You don't get into MIT by having lousy grades. And, you know, Indian parents, that's all they ask you about is your grades. And mainly that they, they don't ask about the grades. Uh, they don't put your report cards on refrigerators when you get straight A's. All the, your only question is, you know, why didn't you get straight A's when you don't? Yeah. Well, though, though, though I should say, uh, okay, this isn't, this is not really watering it down. I went to MIT for grad school and went to the Dartmouth for undergrad. Uh, but, but, <laughs> point taken. Same. but I, my memory is, I mean, a, a couple of things there and then I'll, then I'll talk about my, my siblings. But, uh, my memory there is that at some point, in early junior high, I figured out colleges start looking at your grades starting at whatever it was, like freshman year or something, right? They're not interested in your grades before high school or whatever it was. I learned that. And so just very strategically, I was like, great, I don't have to think too much about this uh, until I get to high school. And so I had more erratic grades in junior high. You know, I think if my parents have been closely following uh, they might have they might have been uh, worried about it and there could have been some pressure there, but there's a lot going on and and I, and I knew it didn't matter and in some sense like that record wouldn't be captured. Um, I I think also I had done well and this is really dredging up memories. I you know we did we took SATs. There's this program where you like take the SAT. I remember that. And, yeah. yeah, right. And so like I had in, in middle school as like a you know it wasn't recorded anywhere, but I had done well on that and and there was those like CTY programs. I don't know if you know about those that. Uh, Johns Hopkins ran, so I was invited. So they sort of assumed, well, you maybe you're smart, and but all right. So when I got to high school, I was like, okay, now grades start to matter, and I do think I I tried harder, but I was I was pretty lazy. Um, 
so yeah, it's interesting. I was I was like relatively lazy. I didn't take a killer load, but a pretty hard load. But I was a smart guy, and I could do pretty well. But again, I'm coming from a public high school where it's you know four, maybe that send four kids to an Ivy League school in any given year, and that'd be a big deal, right? Um, so there wasn't this huge pressure there. And uh, but I think I was also just interesting. I mean, I, I ran a business and um, played in a rock band. It was very well read. And I think I just came across as an interesting person in the applications. I had good grades, but not the best. Um, good SAT scores, I think. I don't know. Anyways, <laughs> that, I'm just, I don't know why I'm dredging this up. I'm just curious. But oh, uh, I have been known to do that to people. So don't yeah. worry. I, I, I just want to know these things because I'm curious about them. Yeah, no, no. I mean, I, I became a serious student at college. I mean, that's the whole story behind uh, how to become a straight A student is you know, like I went to college and did OK my, my freshman year. Uh, and then I got real serious about I want better grades. And and I that's when I went through this whole let me experiment with study habits and note taking and then transformed into a very, very good student. So mm. starting the fall of my sophomore year, I became a four a student for the rest of my my college experience and graduated Dartmouth with a three nine five and was ranked like number, you know, seven out of a thousand students in the class. That all happened in college. Like at some point I, I realized, you know, wait, I'm paying a lot of loans to be here. <laughs> okay. I, I want to get more serious about it. But that, that came a little later. Um, but my siblings are all very smart. You know, uh, two of them went to the Naval Academy and the nuke school. One was on subs and one was uh, working the reactors of aircraft carriers. And uh, the, my brother on subs has now worked for the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, uh, head safety inspector at a nuclear power plant. My sister works at Booz Allen. And my other sister became a doctor. So wow. you know, yeah. it's a, it's a, a, you know, something going on. There. It's a, it's a, it's a sharp group, sharp group of kids, I'd say. Yeah. Well, one, one question about this, like, you know, you become sort of, you know, Cal Newport, uh, the author, you know, the, the guy who writes the book about how to be a straight A student. I'm wondering like your younger siblings, did they take that advice to heart and apply it themselves? Oh yeah. I, I, yes, to some degree. I mean, that we're, we're kind of close in, we're kind of close in age. Um, so by the time I was writing those books, you know, I think my youngest, I used to talk to my youngest sister, right? Because obviously my older brother was out of school by the time I wrote those and, and my uh, younger sister. Yeah. I, I, I definitely remember my youngest sister, especially when she was in med school. Um, we would talk a lot about it. And, and, and I think, you know, during college, a lot of people have a hard relationship with this type of advice sometimes because it's, it's not really what college is about for everyone, but when you get to more professional school, things are more transactional, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm in medical yeah. school to learn this because I want to get this residency because I want this job. So I do remember that with my youngest sister. I don't think I talked to her much when she was in college about how to study, but when yeah. she was in med school, she's like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> like what's, what's, let's just get, let's get tactics. Let's get strategies. You know, let's get after it. Uh, Cause there's definitely a mindset shift when you move on yeah. to, to a more professional schooling environment, it's much more transactional. Well, I think that makes a perfect segue to talking about one thing that I, yeah, I know, you know that I will never leave a conversation with you uh, without asking you about it. And that is the state of education uh, today, particularly in light of a pandemic. You know, and I do like the fact that we started with college and, and the fact that you, you know, kind of became a great student. Cause I think that one thing I saw particularly at a place like Berkeley was that Everybody who comes there is basically, you know, at the heights of their high school class. They're all, you know, valedictorians. We think we're really smart. And then you get there and everybody's a thousand times smarter than you are. I mean, for me, it was like, you know, the worst grades imaginable. I went from being a straight A student to high school in high school to graduating with a C minus average. And I think part of it was, you know, I never learned how to study. But why is it that you don't think people actually learn this, like to to actually navigate the dynamics of college? Like what causes that sort of 
um, you know, person who basically is, you know, a genius in high school to become an idiot in college. Not that I was a genius in high school or an idiot in college, but I think it might have been, um, if it wasn't Outliers, it was uh, the other book, Malcolm and uh, David and Goliath that, you know, Gladwell wrote, where he actually talked about a girl who opted to go to Brown versus another girl who went to, a, you know, a lesser known school and she thrived, whereas the girl who had gone to Brown who was this just amazing student in high school actually, you know, was very average in college. So why does that happen? One. And then two, you know, you're a college professor who has been teaching in the midst of a pandemic. So what has all of this revealed to you and, and to the system at large about what the future of this is going to look like? Well, I mean, as to the question of why students are so bad at being students, I think there's definitely a sort of social developmental aspect of people's college experience that can take precedence over a more professionalized approach. And and what I'm basing this off of is looking at my book on how to study, because the big audiences for my How to Become a Straight A Student book are non-traditional students, people who are coming back later in life. I, I've done a lot of work over the time, years with like GI Bill vets returning and going to school on the GI Bill, first-generation students who are maybe working at the same time. People in those contexts, which is different than the standard U.S. path of your 18, you know, and you're going to college right after high school. Uh, people are coming at it later in life after, you know, whatever, serving overseas or, or uh, working at the same time or having families. They're like, let's get the let's get to work. You know, so they love it. Like, give me advice. Give me strategies. It's a job. Actually, this is easier than most jobs I've had before. And they do really well. Uh, they do really well. Um, but when yeah. you get students that are, OK, yeah, of course, I'm going to college and I'm 18 and I'm going off to Berkeley after, you know, finishing my high school. There's a lot of other factors at play in that experience. This is what I've come to what I've come to learn. And, and sort of like I was talking about with my sister, there's a lot of other factors at play. You're trying to discover yourself. You're trying to find yourself as an adult. You're trying to find separation from your identity that you had based on your your nuclear family household. Um, you care a lot about presentation of self and construction of self. And there's a real concern probably that professionalization of your habits is well, A, that might reflect poorly on you. It might make you seem uh, you know, nerdish, I guess, or it's just not at the top of your mind. You know, it's it's a really interesting dynamic. Um, but I've noticed that a lot. I've noticed that a lot is that students are bad at being students and are kind of happy being bad at it. So I think that's for for sure. And then what's the pandemic doing? You know, I'm I'm still not sure. I my what I lean back on is this notion that we often and it's, I heard someone say this. So my apologies that I'm not citing the right person. I heard someone say this earlier in the pandemic. We often uh, overestimate, we overestimate forces of temporary disruption and underestimate the power of inertia. And mm. I don't know that one year of highly disrupted higher education, I don't think it's enough to make a giant change. That's, that's sort of my new working hypothesis. I think everyone is just riding off the year as a suffer year because everything kind of yeah. sucked. And, uh, and actually most schools... Uh, most schools have, are, are kind of are open or kind of open. It depends like where you are. A lot of this is sort of um, politically based, like the regional and political, like how open your school is or not, not open much more so than let's say like viral background. But my sense is there's hundreds and hundreds of years of this model of rough model of education of going to these schools and, and, and being there in person and this and that, that the pandemic is probably not enough yeah. to cause like a, a severe rupture in the model though it may seed a lot of things that grow into really interesting metaphorical trees yeah 
Well, I guess the the thing that struck me in particular, and I'm curious what your your perspective is on on this as a as a professor, and you know, even my dad is dealing with the same things. You know, he's teaching his classes via Zoom. And I think the thing that struck me most was when people at Harvard were like, what the hell? We're going to pay $50,000 a year, the same tuition to watch somebody, you know, give this lecture on Zoom that I could watch for free on Coursera. Um, like, how does that, you know, when you think, when you see that, does it make you angry? Like, I mean, you're, you're a professor in the system that, you know, actually makes this happen in the same time. Your salary is dependent on those students, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially at a school like Georgetown, which is heavily tuition dependent. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, well, look, there's a long list of things that was very annoying about this year, which is giving the universities cover. Right. So, so let's say there had in a, in a counterfactual, there'd been some sort of disruption that only affected universities. I think that there would have been more of an impetus for, wait a second, what's going on here with the model. But I think that, that anger, which kind of makes sense, like, wait a second, I'm watching this video on Zoom that was pre-recorded, uh, you know, and, and MIT has the same class being taught for you can you can download the video from there. And so why am I watching Cal instead of Eric Domain teach algorithms or something like that? I, I think it was somewhat obfuscated by the fact that every other aspect of people's lives had similar uh, similar frustrations going on. And so yeah. that might that might have obfuscated some of the some of the disruption. I think it also emphasized the value p- students place on being mean on campus, being around each other, the activities, the physical location of it, the, the whole, I, I really picked this up from my students very strongly. A couple months was okay. By the time we got to the fall, they were fraying. And the thing they were fraying is they had to get out of those houses. They could be back in their parents' house to be uh, back in their old bedroom. It felt so restrictive. I think that's where I was starting to see a lot of you know, mental health impacts. And mm. so that is one lesson I learned is that there's this huge value that these 19-year-olds and 20-year-olds have if they're so lucky to have this opportunity to say, look, I'm on a a 300-year-old camp or 200-year-old campus with old stone buildings and we live in the dorm and we have, and you know, we, we go to pep rallies for the basketball team and those type of things, I think, were, are playing a really important role in this sort of this, this social development of a lot of these young kids. So, that's where I saw the frustrations. The Zoom stuff, you know, I think they could, you're right. Oh, yeah, like, like, it's not great. Um, yeah. But it was being home. And that's mm. what was starting to fray on people. Well, I think that that makes a, a perfect segue to talking briefly about sort of social media and the role of social media in the pandemic. And, you know, as <clears throat> I was telling you before we hit record, I think it was probably January where I, you know, had probably, you know, I started and I was like on a 90 plus day hiatus, almost no activity on Facebook. And then Indian matchmaking came out and my social feed was a hell of a lot more interesting all of a sudden um, because it wasn't, you know, as I said, just attention, but attention from women. And as a single guy, I'm like, oh, this is something that I kind of want to pay attention to. And and to be very candid with you, it became a really big distraction for about six weeks. Uh, it took And it took a while to get back to it. But that being said, I mean, and for a lot of people, this has been their lifeline you know, during a pandemic, this has been their way to connect with other people. And so as somebody who has been a a vocal critic of social media, you know, from deep work up until now, what, what, you know, what have you discovered about, you know, sort of its role in the midst of a situation where we're all stuck at home? Well, you know, I think the pandemic helped underscore and support the dualistic nature of technology that I talked about in digital minimalism, where, I used a chariot driver metaphor from Plato and talked about 
how you have uh, the the ignoble steed that sort of represents your your base instincts, and then you have the noble steed that represents what's good, and the soul is like the chariot driver that's trying to control these two things. And when it comes to using technology, when deployed intentionally, you can empower the noble steed. When used casually, it superpowers the ignoble steed, and everything goes off a course. And I think people saw this dichotomy very clearly, especially during, uh, I mean, depending where you live, the strong lockdown phases of the pandemic, because on the one hand, there's tools that the social internet offered that were really empowering the noble steed, the ability to talk with family, the ability to talk with friends, the ability to use video. You can actually see the face of family members that you weren't able to see in person. Maybe the, the leveraging of WhatsApp or texting so that you could maybe have more conversation with your family than you might normally. And it would have been very isolating without these technologies. In fact, we probably wouldn't have been able to even do shelter-in-place orders without these technologies because it just wouldn't have worked, right? Society would not have functioned. On the other hand, social media, if we're going to get real narrow, let's talk about the giant attention monopoly platforms, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram. For a lot of people, these were a massive negative during the pandemic. You know, especially Twitter, a lot of people fell into a doom-scrolling habit I would say uh, Twitter became a giant source of stress and anxiety and anger for a lot of people. You take a pandemic, you mix it up with a contentious presidential election, and you're just on this thing doom scrolling. And it was just making people angry and it was making people anxious and it was causing, uh, and I think it had a lot of real ramifications for people's mental health. I think it probably had ramifications on our response uh, yeah. to the pandemic. And so that's, I think it's a perfect example of that dichotomous nature of technology. See, look, I can deploy some of these tools to connect to people I care about in a way that would be physically hard. Fantastic. But I can also get sucked into YouTube rabbit holes that where I end up as a, you know, QAnon chieftain or doom scrolling on Twitter <laughs> and end up, you know, in a fetal position under my desk. That was terrible for people. And so I think it just validated that the, the sort of the nuance of the hypothesis of that book. Yeah. Well, let me, you know, go a little deeper on, on sort of this idea of, of fame, because the reason I brought up Indian matchmaking in general, you know, with, with you was, and I, I thought about emailing you the entire time this was happening saying, Hey, I'm having to deal with a, a level of attention. That's unlike anything that I've dealt with before. And, you know, I get on the one hand, it's flattering on another. It's kind of annoying because I quit all this stuff. Um, you wrote this piece about Bryce Harper, the baseball player, and I very distinctly remember that. Um, so, you know, when you're dealing with something like this, and I am nowhere as near as famous as a baseball player with a $430 million contract, but um, what is it that you see play out there um, that makes that particularly effective or, you know, negative? Because I remember even you and I were talking about this where you said, you know, NBA players before the night, night of a game who tweeted actually scored less points, if I remember correctly. So, you know, when you navigate that sort of sudden, um, you know, flood of attention, like what is that doing? And, and then more importantly, how the hell do you, you know, not let it derail you? I mean, it's a it's an incredibly powerful force that has been I don't want to say it's, it's not just that it's been supercharged. It's more like it's been democratized. Right. So the the negative impact of sudden celebrity attention is due to the realities of the delivery mechanisms. If you went back 20 years was very narrowly applied to a very small number of people, like really big movie stars, really big sports stars. Social media has essentially democratized the negative aspects of sudden attention to a much wider group of people because now you have the, the delivery mechanisms through which people can actually discuss you and give you attention and directly reach you in this sort of infinitely scalable way. 
And it's a it's an issue. I mean, it's both a benefit and an issue. Obviously, being able to democratize celebrity opens up more opportunities because there's there's lots of different professional endeavors where having some notoriety is, is useful. But it also democratizes the negative aspects of celebrity. And I think it's a real issue. And so I talk to a lot of people in professional sports because they're really worried about this, the impact of this on on professional sports performance. That's why, you know, I wrote about Bryce Harper. He doesn't do basically any of that. I mean, I, I, he has like a team that posts some stuff occasionally, but he just doesn't care, especially once the season gets going. You wouldn't see him on there, you know, engaging with his audience. And why? Because it's an intensely cognitively demanding endeavor to try to hit a 97 mile per hour fastball out of a park and you know, like every x percent distraction back there in the back of your mind is three batting average points and it matters and it could matter to, to your team's success or to your success uh and so you definitely do see that and i, I think people are i mean you experience so you tell me like it it's weirdly manipulating of your emotions right because it's almost irresistible yeah. there's few things more irresistible than someone is saying something about you over here yeah you can't oh, not I mean, look at that right you can't not look at it and then it gives you these highs but then these killer lows and then right you seek the highs to try to offset the lows but it's like with a drug addiction the highs stop being able to do that and the lows start to take uh, over oh i mean i i remember for the first week it was just like holy shit who are all these people and on the flip side of that it was just like oh you know i'm a single guy yeah and you know i mean I, you know, there were things that were said about me that weren't that nice. And, you know, the other person got a lot of negative attention. It was kind of crazy. And, you know, and, and I remember even one of the other girls I, I was talking to her at the end of the week. I'm like, this is insane. And and she had a situation where she had like 800 followers on Twitter. And by the end of the week, when that show aired, she had 70,000 or 100,000. It was madness. I mean, and yeah, you're right. It was this addictive thing where you just, you know, couldn't stop. For a while, it was like, wow, this is kind of nuts. Um, yeah. You know, and you add layer on top of that, the fact that there are billions of Indians in the world. Um, and then you add to the top of that, every one of my parents' friends saw it and descended on my parents like vultures. I had a point where I was like, I can't take this. This is insane. Um, so I said, look, you guys want to set me up with anybody? I'm like, this is my cousin. I'm like, she's the filter. She is the gatekeeper. I will not talk to anybody but her from this point forward. Yeah. Uh, and even then, it, it's it's taken a long time to get back to some semblance of normalcy. Yeah, well, let me let me ask you about this, because I think you're a really great case study about the reality and the myth. Like, I think a lot of people, especially younger people, think what I want is that celebrity. Like, if, if, yeah. if I had a lot of followers and a lot of people paying attention to me online, you know, everything good will be built on that. Uh, but that's often not at all what you should seek. So, like, let's consider what you nor you mainly do in your life, right? You have this business you've been building. Yeah. That is successful, but also highly impactful and puts you in close connection with these people that you serve who are getting a lot out of you. You have investors that you're serving. You're that probably think about how much more significant I'm assuming that probably is in your life. Like, but we don't get that model as much if you're, you're 19. You're like, no, what I want is the, I'm on a, a Netflix show and then get a yeah. lot of followers. But yeah, that's going to get you basically a lot of anxiety and like a few highs where we don't hear the alternative model, which is like, actually, what's going to be better suited for your human nature is I've built up something important and I think yeah. it's impactful and I like the people I work with and I think I'm making a difference in the world. And that has none of the anxieties of is some you know famous person trolling me or getting mad at me or, or is my likes, am I being ratio? I mean, I don't know what ratio would mean, but I think it's a bad thing. Uh, you know, like whatever, right? Am I am I being uh, yeah, TikToked on a clubhouse or something like that? 
all that negativity, you don't have that when it's I'm slowly building. I sometimes call this quiet productivity. I'm slowly okay. building something that that matters. It's deeply yeah, fulfilling. I mean, I'm- I, I mean, I always say, like, I mean, even people would ask me about it. I said, look, to me, this is an, an inflection point. I don't want to be known for this. I want to be known for unmistakable creative. Like, you know, I, that to me is far more meaningful than, you know, a brief moment on TV. Yeah. And it's not, and you, yeah. And, and to be really widely known, I mean, I don't know. Look, here's, here's my experience. I'm not at all famous. Um, but I guess I'm well known enough that on like a semi-regularly based basis, I might be recognized, right? Someone on the street. Uh, but I don't have any social media. So I, it, to me, that's like, it's just surprising and foreign. I mean, I just have no idea, you know, are people happy about me, mad about me, not thinking about me, thinking about me. I'm just really not plugged into any of that. And I have to say, it's like incredibly freeing because my sense is I'm probably known enough that if I was on social media, it would be a really large cognitive footprint, right? The emotional footprint of that that existence would probably right now be a major suck of mental cycles. And yeah. so, I mean, there's, <laughs> I'm not very happy right now. It's like, I don't know. Maybe everyone hates me. Everyone loves me. Everyone's ignoring me. I don't know. Um, but not knowing has been a gift. Well, it's funny because, you know, your name has come up numerous times on the podcast, you know, when I was talking to Nir Eyal, and I think I remember sending you a conversation and he was like, yeah, Nir is more optimistic than I am about this. And I remember thinking, I'm like, maybe I get the two of you together here to like battle it out. <laughs> you know? Um, but that being said, I think that what you just said makes a perfect segue to talking about this entire concept of a world without email. So what prompted your uh, desire to, to even and write a book and, you know, like a world without email sounds like a dream come true at this point. Right, right. Or a fantasy, right? <laughs> they're going to they're gonna shelve it in the fantasy section at, at uh, yeah. Barnes & Noble. Um, I've actually been working on that book since 2016. So right after Deep Work... I began laying the groundwork. It took me about four or five years to pull together all the threads. I put it on pause, wrote Digital Minimalism, came back to it, kept working on it. So it's more of an Opus-style book. And basically, I wrote Deep Work, came out in 2016. And there's this really urgent follow-up question to me about that book, which is, uh, well, why why really is it so hard for us to find time to do deep work? I mean, if you remember in, in that original book... I didn't talk much about the causes. I mean, I was like, yeah, we're on email too much or this or that, but let's just talk about the value of focus and how to train yourself to focus and why it's important. And the feedback was, wait a second, I don't think you realize how impossible it is to do this. And so I really got interested in this question. Why is it so hard? Like, why are, why are companies so consistently set up in such a way that it's, it's very difficult to actually do the thing they hired you to do and use your brain and produce value? And it was a massive story. Right. That's what I discovered. I needed five years to write it because there are so many different threads that were wrapped up tightly that when you pulled on them, there was this huge, magnificent story that explained why do we work this way? Why is it so bad? What the future is going to hold? It just seemed really grand. And so this book, you know, Deep Work opened up that rabbit hole and I fell down that thing and rolled for a while. Wow. Well, I mean, you open the book by saying that the underlying value of constant electronic communication that defines modern work is never questioned as this would be hopelessly reactionary and nostalgic like pining for, pining for the lost days of horse transport or the romance of candlelight um and you're you make a pretty strong criticism of why email has been actually you know uh detrimental to to knowledge work and you know having read the book having you know spent a lot of time you know applying your concepts i i happen to agree with a lot of it but 
Um, I think let, let's start with how we actually got here in the first place, um, because I know that you talk about the reduction in productivity that email causes. And I, I think that's obvious to most of us. We're not, you know, unaware of that. Um, but I'm, I, I, you know, part of it is knowing what to do with it. But let, let's just start there with these two concepts of email reduces productivity and email makes us miserable. Yeah, I don't think people recognize the degree to which it's reducing productivity. Uh, so if you if you go down into the research, and I talked to these researchers, read all the papers, really went deep on what happens when we have to check email all the time. And actually, that's the right place to start. Do we check email all the time? So I gathered all the data we have on that. And the answer is 100% definitively yes. And it's been getting more and more and more with each with each year. Uh, the number I like to cite is in this one very large study, once every six minutes was how often uh, knowledge workers are checking their email. And if you have Slack in your company, that becomes shorter, right? So it's constant. Like that's about as close as you can get to constant, especially when you recognize that that number includes things like lunch hours or meetings where maybe you can't be checking your email. So that means you're checking it even much more frequently in the times that you're actually able to, right? Um, so we check it all the time. It's constant checking. The damage of that to our brains and our happiness and our satisfaction is massive. The human brain cannot do that context switching. When we look at an inbox and we see hundreds of messages, most of which we cannot resolve in the moment, right? It, these are issues that are being brought to us by other people, people we know that we can't solve right now. The question is too big. It's ambiguous. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just checking my inbox because I'm in the middle of a conversation. You know, Trini and I are going back and forth about uh, whatever, scheduling a podcast. I'm just checking that, but I'm seeing all these other messages. And then you turn your attention back to what you were doing. Having exposed yourself to all of these unresolved tasks that are waiting there and connected to people who need things from you, and your brain goes haywire because when it sees all these messages, it begins the process of, okay, we have to uh, switch our context. We have to begin suppressing these networks and amplifying these networks to get ready to deal with these new things. And halfway through that process, you bring your attention back to the thing you're writing or the code you're trying to type up or whatever it is, and your brain is now in a uh, cognitive catastrophe of crossed wires and aborted context shifts. It makes it incredibly hard to think. It also exhausts us. And I think a lot of people have that experience of where they're, they're, you're checking email a bunch while you're trying to do something. And at some point, you just get so fatigued, you just give up and like, I'm just going to stay in my inbox. It's not a failure yeah. of will. You literally tired out your mind. You tired out your mind with all that context shifting. It can't do it anymore. And it's done actually trying to do something productive thinking. And then you layer in this other reality that this mode of communication where you pile up messages faster than you can keep up completely conflicts with our deep social wiring and makes us feel very anxious. You know, mm -hmm. like, oh, there's all these people who need me and I'm not responding to them. And it's getting worse and worse every minute that I'm not looking at my inbox. That yeah. is a worst case scenario from the perspective of taking these deep social networks deep in our brain uh, and trying to design a way of communicating. That is going to get us very upset and so we have this background hum of anxiety because there's a conflict between this fundamental way of communicating and fundamentally how our brains work it's funny you say that because i remember i think maybe it was like 2014 sometime in march april right right before we were planning our event I, there was one day where and i think this was pretty this was definitely prior to deep work where i literally must have checked my email a hundred times a day and my anxiety at the end of that day was off the charts and i think i was waiting for some like response from a potential sponsor um, and then, you know, years later, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go snowboard all day. And I, I've noticed this over and over and over again. I can literally go a day, day and a half without looking at my email once and nothing bad happens. Uh, and, you know, often only good things happen and I, I don't end up wasting a lot of time. 
which always is, is talking to me. Like I always joke that, you know, unless you're the president of the United States, you have no reason to be checking email multiple times a day. And even then you probably don't. Yeah. And the president doesn't have email. So you know, they have a chief of staff who does that for them. But this, this is a key point though, because one of the big things I argue is that even if your rational part of your brain says it's okay, it's okay. Because look, last week I went snowboarding all day and nothing bad happened. Yes, there's a lot of messages in there, but our company has expectations around response time. No one is expecting a response where it's fine. The deeper part of your brain is still going to get anxious. That yeah. rational part of your brain that knows the rules of email and company culture can't influence that really fundamental deep social network. And one study I talk about that captures this was that insidious study where they brought in research subjects to do some sort of fake experiment on a computer that allowed them to hook them up to heart rate monitors and skin galvanometers, like the stuff you could use to measure stress. And at some point in the experiment, they have the the researcher come in and say, oh, you know, your phone is messing with our instrument, so we're just going to move it, right? So they would pick up your iPhone and they would move it across the room. And the reason why they focused on iPhone users is they could turn off the do not disturb because it's on the side of the phone. So they turn it off surreptitiously as they moved it across the room. And you go back to your experiment and then they would text the phone. So you would hear it. Now, here's the thing. Rationally, these subjects had put their phone on do not disturb. So they had been completely fine rationally with this idea of I can't be reached. I'm not going to hear it if something comes in. I'm completely fine with it. My phone's on do not disturb. It's going to last a half hour. But when they heard the phone ring, all of those markers of stress response that were being monitored by the fake experiment, all of them shot off the charts. Because that deeper part said someone in your tribe is tapping you on the shoulder. You're ignoring them. If you ignore them, they're not going to give you food next time there's a famine and you're going to die. <laughs> and it doesn't care about, you know, your company no norms or your rational explanation. So uh, it's not that this is not malicious. No one designed email to try to make us miserable. It's just an, uh, an unfortunate but unavoidable side effect of this means yeah. of communicating. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. 
Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So you, know, you talk about this um, concept of, of the hive mind and you say that, you know, the, the modern knowledge work organization truly does operate like a hive mind, a collective of many different brains tethered electronically into a dynamic um <clears throat> hence of like wet ebb flow of information and current current conversations um i think we're all pretty aware of the fact that email is is not only killing our productivity but fairly ineffective yet it's still sort of the the backbone of communication and 90 percent of knowledge organizations yeah and so this is the the key distinction so right now we can we can lay to rest i think the concern people have about well if i don't use email to send a message what am i going to use a fax machine or a voicemail and so we can <laughs> We can establish here that email is a tool, I think is a fantastic tool. If you need to d- deliver information, you need to deliver files, it is far superior to a fax machine or voicemail or memos. There's a reason why it spread so rapidly once it became available. It solves a real problem. It's a fantastic tool. So what's the actual problem? The way we began to work once email was available. So once email arrived on the scene, we switched over to a workflow that, as you said, I call the hyperactive hive mind, where we say, well, now that we have low-friction digital communication, in addition to just using this to replace what we used to do on the fax machine, in addition to using this to replace what we used to do with memos, in addition to using this to replace voicemail, let's now actually work things out, like collaborate together with back-and-forth unscheduled messaging. We'll just rock and roll in the inbox. Just go back and forth. Hey, what about this? Well, you, you want to jump on a, you want to come on over? When should we do this? Did you see from this client what's going on with that? Just back and forth, unstructured, unscheduled messaging. And we can just do this with anyone on any issue in the company or out. That's the hyperactive hive mind. It's not inevitable that you work that way just because email as a tool exists, but it is how most people migrated their work habits once this tool arrived. And so when I call mm. my book, a world without email. What I really mean is a world without the hyperactive hive mind being the main way that we actually collaborate or coordinate. So this hyperactive hive mind rapidly emerged following the arrival of email. It's how most, and there's some key exceptions here, but it's how most knowledge work organizations now organize themselves. 
And it is the hive mind that causes the problem. Because, hey, if you're going to broadcast, let's say, you know, there's announcements in our company or broadcast via email. Great. That's a good way to do it. It's not going to hurt me. Let's say, uh, oh, I, I'm going to send you the, the proofs of this thing. I'll send it to you via email instead of printing them. Great. That's a great, a great use of email. The thing that kills us is I have 13 different back and forth asynchronous conversations happening via email or via Slack. I don't really care about the technology. And so I have to constantly tend those channels to keep this hive mind chatter going. That's where we get the pain of email is once we start using it to implement that way of collaborating. Wow. So um, my community manager, Melina, had two very actually interesting questions about this. Um, she asked, you know, one, if you're in an organization you know, that is heavily email focused, you have the option to opt out. Um, and then we'll start getting into the, the principles here. Um, and then the other, she made a good point. You know, like our email list is the prime, one of the biggest drivers of our sales for our membership community. And, you know, I mean, and it's funny because there's also this issue of we don't want to become overly dependent on channels like social media that we don't own because they can make change any time that really hoses us. Um, so with that in mind, like, you know, how how with that in mind do you think about this? Because I know you have an email list, obviously, like if you're an author who wants to sell your books, that's a pretty critical part of it. Right. Well, this is where the hyperactive hive mind uh, clarifies everything. Right. So when we realize that the, the actual thing that I am against is this hyperactive hive mind workflow is the way that you collaborate within your organizations, it clarifies all these issues. So an email newsletter, that's a great way. Broadcasting information is a great use of email. You know, it's a great tool for it. It's much cheaper and more flexible than trying to print out newsletters and mail it, mail it to everybody. Right. That's a, that's a great innovation. Uh, but sending out a newsletter has nothing to do with a hyperactive hive mind workflow for collaborating with work, right? And so I think we get a lot of clarity. Now, of course, I got a lot of those. Uh, I get a lot of those ironic, you know, isn't this ironic emails every time I email about the book? But I think once uh, once I actually clarify, like, yeah, it's not about email as a tool being wrong. What's wrong is this idea of organization saying, we'll just work things out on the fly with back uh -huh. and forth messaging. Uh, that's where the problem is. Now, going to your community manager's first question. Once we now understand, again, that the issue is this workflow, the huge realization you have is that you're not going to fix these problems in your inbox, right? You're not going to fix these problems by having better uh, inbox etiquette. You're not going to fix it with batching. You're not going to fix it with turning off notifications. You're certainly not going to fix it by saying, I'm just not going to use email because if the hyperactive hive mind is how your organization works right now, if you're not an email, you're not collaborating. You're, everything's going to get stuck. It's not going to work. You're going to either get fired or forced back on the email again. So once you realize it's the workflow is the problem, you realize, oh, if we're going to solve this, we have to go below the inbox and fix the underlying processes. And that's mm -hmm. the huge message in this book is that if you actually go through and list out, these are actually the processes that are relevant to my job or my work. These are the things I do regularly yeah. that produce value for my company. And for each of these, say, how do we actually collaborate with each other to execute this process? And if you've never thought about that before, the answer by default is probably the hyperactive hive mind. But once mm -hmm. you have a name for each of these processes, you can say, is there another way to implement this process that yeah. minimizes the need to do this sort of unscheduled back and forth messaging and inbox and chat? And as you do this process after process, the pressure on your inbox reduces. The need to keep checking your inbox to bounce these conversational ping pong balls back and forth, back and forth across the net, that reduces. 
And all of these productivity hits from the constant checking, all of these miseries caused by the overflowing uh, piles of people needing things from you, that all dissipates. So it's yeah. not about my inbox habits. It's not about do I use email or not use email. It's do I use the hyperactive hive mind workflow or something that's better? Hmm. Well, let's talk about how to build um, something that is better, because as I said, I mean, to me, this was one of those things where it made me really rethink kind of how we thought about this. And, um, you know, you mentioned process like the it's funny, you may have read it. Victor Chang wrote this book called Extreme Revenue Growth, where he talks about how to scale a startup from a million to twenty five million dollars. You know what? One of the first things that he has CEOs do um, when he works with them, document every single process for every single thing that they do on a regular basis. Yes. Yes. And so, so processes are king. Uh, the problem a lot of people have, whether you're running your own business or are an employee in a big company, is you get into the impression that, oh, like the email is my job. And yeah, this is what I do. I answer emails, move it back and forth. That's my job. No, no, no. The email communication is serving underlying processes. You have like the, the answer client question process, the produce podcast episode process, the put together a white paper for publication process. You might never have named them before. Might not have thought about them before, but all of this back and forth ad hoc messaging is serving these processes. And so once you name them, you can say, well, what's the right way or what's a better way to actually do these? And it opens up so much innovation. And so small businesses know this. So you mentioned extreme revenue growth. You can look at traction. You can look at work to system. You can work at e-myth revisited. I mean, book after book in the small business space comes back to the same thing. Figure out what your actually processes are and then figure out how to make those better. Like all growth comes from that. That mindset needs to extend to just about everybody. Because if you don't, you still have processes. It's just that they're really bad. In other words, the way you're implementing them is just, I don't know, we'll figure it out on the fly. uh, And that doesn't scale. So, I mean, I know, like Trini, your company in particular is really into this process-oriented thinking. So a lot of what you so probably a lot of familiarity when you're reading the book. Uh, Mm -hmm. But for a lot of people, for a lot of people, they've never thought that way. It's like, what do you mean? I get emails, I respond to them, we kind of have meetings on my calendar, we rock and roll, which which means they're they're proverbially stuck in the small business that has the opportunity to grow to this sort of metaphorical large revenue, you know? Well, it's funny because right after I read your book, we have an Airtable contact form and it, you know, for guest pitches and it's really simple. Like if I say yes, it sends somebody an email automatically saying, yeah, we'd love to have you. If I say no, it sends them nothing. I'm like, why the hell am I getting this delivered to my inbox? Like there's no need for that anymore. Um, so I immediately turned off the zap that was sending the emails to my inbox. And now I only have one place because I was like, I'm looking at the same thing in two different places. Yeah. And so I think this is useful, right? So let's like rattle off some, some concrete examples. The main thing I want to emphasize in these examples is that based on the research, we know about the, the, the cognitive hit from context switching, the metric you are trying to minimize when you're optimizing these processes should be the number of back and forth messaging required. It's not time, it's not complexity, it's not pain or convenience. It is how much unscheduled back and forth messaging is required for this process to complete. And you want to minimize that number, right? So you want to keep that in mind. Uh, so you, you gave a good example there, a way of going from a guest pitch to booking a guest that does requires essentially what you have that one incoming email and, and then you just click something in an air table, right? That's a yeah. fantastic example. Uh, another example is like the way I work with my publicist for booking podcast for book publicity. We have a shared document system where she puts the she puts the opportunities in there along with the scheduling information. Like, okay, here's a link to schedule if they have a scheduling link, or or if not, here's the times that that could work. I check this document twice a week and I go through and add my responses and update it. 
then she adds all the details lower down in the document. There's zero back and forth messaging involved, even though I'm doing dozens and dozens of interviews that sometimes requires lots of back, lots of back and forth. You know, that's a process. Um, another example of one of these processes could be we have a team that uses Trello and each client has a Trello board. Everything we're working on for that client is on a card. Every related file is attached to a card. Every list and process is on one of these virtual cards. The columns capture their statuses. We have these short, highly structured meetings at regularly scheduled time where we look at this thing. Who's doing what? What do you need? How's it going? Execute. Zero inbox involved. No messages involved. Mm -hmm. And yet these clients, all the information stored in progress is being made. So uh, there's dozens of examples, but I do think it's useful to to hit a few and to keep underscoring that your key here is minimizing back and forth messaging. You want to minimize back, even if it's more overhead up front, back and forth messaging, the need to do the hit the, the message ping pong back and forth across the net. That is the killer. That is the poison. That is the thing you need to look at with like huge skepticism and alarm. Well, I mean, even, you know, the other thing I did right after this is, you know, we have a, an ad sales team and I'm like, you guys send me a lot of email. I'm glad that you're sending me email because it's all potential revenue. But I said the amount of email is causing context switching. So I was like, I'm going to set this up as a document in notion. I want you to put everything there. Uh, but let's talk about it. I think that that actually is a perfect setup because I think Notion really in my mind was designed with this idea of reducing context switching in mind. Um, but let's let's start with the attention capital principle. And, you know, you talk about sort of four five different concepts with the two that I think in, there are a couple that really intrigued me. One was building structures around autonomy. The second was minimizing context switches and overload, which I think we've more or less covered. Um, and then the idea of an assembly line. Uh, can you talk about those and, and how they apply? Well, so the structure one's important because there's a there's a good reason that's largely unknown. I mean, I, I pull it out in the book, and, and I don't really think anyone had reported on this, you know, until I did. Why, if the hyperactive hive mind, if if that is so ineffective, right? If it makes us so unproductive, it makes us so miserable. Why have we remained with it so long? And a big part of that answer is that in knowledge work, we have a huge emphasis on autonomy. Say, unlike an industrial work, where we break things down, everything in the processes, we have assembly lines. Uh, Knowledge work is too complicated, too skilled. We can't tell a computer programmer how to write code. Um, So just give them objectives and let them figure out how they organize their work and get things done. This goes back to a single individual. It goes back to Peter Drucker. He helped midwife the whole idea of knowledge work. He actually coined the term knowledge work, and he really helped American industry understand what this type of work was, how it's different than industrial work and how to deal with it. And he hit again and again, and I document this, you know, decade after decade, autonomy, autonomy, autonomy. This principle of autonomy is one of the big reasons why we've been stuck with the hive mind is because we're just used to this notion that if I run a company, I mean, unless it's like a small business or something, if I'm a manager, this or that, look, I'm not going to tell my workers how to work. If they want to be more productive, they can buy a a Cal Newport book. But it's not, it's not, we shouldn't be thinking about how they organize their work. Just, we just need really clear objectives. Here's our OKRs, you know, rock and roll, right? And I argue this is what has got us into this trap because you can't get rid of the hive mind in an organization unless you actually have the organization on board with, we need to change this with other processes. No individual can do this very effectively on their own. So how do we escape that trap? Well, my argument is that Drucker was right that how knowledge workers actually execute their work, you know, how you write the algorithm, if you're a computer programmer, is highly autonomous, can't break it down into steps, leave people alone to figure out how they do that. But 
everything that surrounds the actual execution. So all the details about how we identify task and review task and assign task and uh, make sure that people have the information they need to execute the task and report once they're done. All of these things that surround actually executing, that should not be left up to the individuals. That's where we need organization think of like, what's our process? What is the process that surrounds this type of work? Build structure around the autonomy. That is the balance I think we need uh, we need to actually get, but it, it's it's hard to underestimate the degree to which it's so pervasive Drucker's influence. You know, you run a mm-hmm. team, you're like, look, it's not my job to tell people how to work. But if, if everyone is fighting for themselves, you're going to end up with the least common denominator. And the least common denominator when it comes to workflow collaboration is going to be fire up the inbox and we'll just rock and roll. <laughs> well, it's funny. I, I think the assembly line struck me so much because even before I read your book, I had been writing about this idea with, with you know, our, our uh, private Mighty Network listeners, you know, because the, the whole premise of, of the membership is, you know, we're designing content to basically help you make your ideas happen. And I said, you know, you want to think of creative work like a factory in a lot of ways. I said the part of it that's not factory like is, you know, the part that you bring to it, but the rest of it is very much like an assembly line yeah. um, where you have inputs, outputs, raw materials and labor where today labor is the combination of, you know, your own habits and then, you know, all the apps and tools you use. But uh, I, I think that that it, it seems so contrary to doing creative work. Yet, if you want to produce media at scale, you have to run it like an assembly line. Yeah, it's like an assembly line, except for instead of what you're doing is turning the bolt on the steering wheel 45 degrees, you know, repeatedly when the steering wheel comes to you, you're recording a podcast, you know, so like you're right. It's like nuanced. It's there's there's structure on here's how the materials move. And we've thought a lot about it. But at yeah. each step when you're actually doing the work. But the other thing that's important about the assembly line is why I spend a lot of time on the story of the assembly line is that if we step away from the specifics of industrial manufacturing. What we learned from Henry Ford's story, which is a very important lesson for today, is that the way they used to build cars, just like the hyperactive high-minded knowledge work, was very convenient and very flexible and very natural. They called it the craft method. You'd put a chassis on some sawhorses and a bunch of craftsmen would sit around it and build the car. It was the same way that, you know, whoever olds the original or Benz or whoever the original German car makers, the way they built the cars. And if you wanted to scale it up, you just get more sawhorses and more teams and everyone would have their own car that they would sit around and they would work on. So the way they were building cars was very natural. It's, it's a natural way you would do it. In fact, it was called the craft method. What Ford did with the continuous motion assembly line was a huge pain, right? It was like really inconvenient. It required them to spend more money. They had to hire more managers and it was very difficult to get right. And until they got it right, it caused a lot of little bad things to happen. Because until you had all of the different uh, stages calibrated properly, if you spent too long here, the whole assembly line would come to a halt. So everything about designing the assembly line would have been a huge frustration to everyone involved, to the investors, to the workers, to the managers. Like, we're going to spend more money to do something more complicated that requires more managers and breaks a lot. However, it was 100x more productive and made Ford the richest person in the world for a while. And I think that part of the assembly line lesson is also really important because it says, look, our goal in work is not to maximize convenience. Our goal in work is not to maximize what's going to be easiest. Our goal is certainly not to reduce friction to the lowest possible levels. I think we fell into this weird trap with technology-mediated knowledge work productivity where we felt like, oh, our whole goal here is to make it as low friction as possible to communicate and see information. But no, we don't get paid for the number of emails we sent. We don't get paid for the amount of bits of information we see. We get paid for whatever it is, the books we produce, the ad campaigns that go out, the computer code uh, that is compiled. And the processes that might push that to the best levels, that might make us most effective, 
they might be like the assembly line a hundred years ago, be a giant pain to figure out. So that's why I also like about that story is don't fear inconvenience. Don't fear lack of simplicity. Don't fear friction. None of those yeah. are what you're trying to optimize in a business. Well, it's funny because, you know, I'd mentioned to you, we, a good amount of our production process was automated, but our promotion process was still kind of clunky. I'm like, we're manually, you know, writing, you know, social media updates and stuff. And to your point, I, I spent probably the last three or four days trying to build out a, another just full-blown Airtable automation to automate, you know, promotion of guest interviews. And I wanted to shoot myself at the end of the day yesterday, not literally, but it was so frustrating because every time I, you know, solve one problem, I would run into one or another hurdle where I'm like, okay, this isn't going to solve this problem. But, you know, I finally narrowed it down to figure out first, I mapped it out using a mind map. And I'm like, all right, how is this going to look if we did this the right way? But then when it, in practice, I realized it didn't align perfectly with the mind map. I'm like, all right, great. Now I've got to go and fix all this stuff, um, which I, I think that, you know, that kind of uh, makes a perfect segue to talking about, you know, two other principles you brought up. You know, we've talked a lot about process, um, but you mentioned a couple of different things uh, I, I think that we didn't get to, and that is the task board revolution and personal Kanban. And then let's talk uh, about protocol. Well, so the task board revolution is a big one. I mean, basically, the idea with any of these tools that allow you to put virtual cards on a virtual board arranged in columns. So you could use Trello, you could use Asana, you could use Flow. Um, I'm, Notion has a ton of power. I'm not as familiar with it, but there's a lot of different tools, right, uh, that, that do basically this metaphor. It's a it's a huge revolution because what it's doing is making the work happening within a company or a team transparent. And it's making it shared. Everyone can see what's going on, who's working on what. And all the information relevant to what's going on and who's working on what is right there. And once you see a project run this way, you'll shake your head at what people normally do, which is all of that information is just implicitly spread across a ton of ad hoc messages spread over a bunch of inboxes. And when you do this comparison, you're like, wow, what a terrible way to organize a project. There's just all these random back and forth messages and like somewhere in my inbox is this file that a client sent and I don't know who's working on this. I'll just bother them with the message and we'll go back and forth. It's so inefficient. And that inefficiency becomes so bald once you see like a beautiful flow board. Oh, here's everything that's going on. You can see the, the icon picture who's working on it. You know, it's right there on the card. If you couple something like this with regular, highly structured, real-time check-ins, you get a huge boost of productivity. And one of the points I made in the book is that even if you're just doing this for yourself, it is much, much better. That your work doesn't just live in your inbox. It's on these boards. You have one board for each of your different roles or projects. You have these very set times. You go in and you check and update these boards in a very specific way. Again, this structure makes all of the difference compared to just all of this information is somewhere spread across our inboxes. Yeah. It's funny you say that. We had uh, Chris Fussell here who worked for uh, Stanley McChrystal, and we're talking about um, you know the U.S. military and Al-Qaeda. And he said that, you know, the advantage that they had over the U.S. military was the rate at which information spread. And he said, basically, what we realized is we had to create a collective consciousness, which is sounds very similar to what you're talking about here. Yeah, all the information is here. We can quickly see who's doing what. And also, I think here's an added benefit. It allows you to be much more sequential in your work. And what I mean by that, and this is like one of the stories from the book, the Vicious Marketing Firms, what I have in mind. They had one board for every client. And one of the things he really emphasized is what this meant was, okay, when I want to work on this particular client, I go to that board. I am now immersed in only that client. 
Like that's what I'm seeing. So all of those networks related to this client can be amplified. All of the neural networks related to other things can be inhibited. Now your mind is in a mode where you can do some good work on this client. And he's like, then I would stay there with the board and I'd work things through and I'd update the cards and do some work and update the status of things. And then when I was done, I could shut down that board and move on to something else. You know, we, that is incredibly important to be able to have your cognitive context on one thing at a time and work on one thing after another. If you used a hyperactive hive mind by contrast, you're in an inbox trying to find and relay information about that client while seeing simultaneously emails about all of your other clients and also emails about, you know, a problem with HR department and the parking changes and, and that all gets jumbled together. And until you actually experience the alternative of all I'm doing in my brain is this client until I'm done, you don't realize the degree to which having everything being visible to you all the time is an incredible drain on your ability to think. Hmm. Well, let's talk specifically about protocol. Um, I, I love, you know, this, this chapter because it really made me think about, you know, email meetings and all sorts of stuff. So let's start with meeting scheduling and, and office hours, uh, and then we'll, we'll talk specifically about short messages and non-personal emails. So when I'm, when I'm talking about protocols, I, what I usually mean uh, is, okay, here is a regularly occurring back and forth interaction that accomplishes a set goal, right? So it's a, it's a process, but for like a very specific thing, such as uh, we have to set meetings. And my argument is in these situations, it's usually worth, if something's going to happen a bunch, to put in a little bit hard work ahead of time to say, here's our protocol for this repeated app, this, this interaction that happens all the time. And here's a protocol that's aimed to minimize back and forth. And you do a little bit of work up front, but then you get to reap the benefits of that effort again and again and again and again every time your more efficient protocol runs. So I think meeting scheduling is a great example. Most jobs, people have to schedule meetings. It happens all the time. The way most people do it is like, let's just go back and forth on email. It's an incredible cognitive drag because, all right, hey, how about Wednesday? Now you're going to get back to me and be like, okay, uh, Wednesday's no good. How about Thursday? And then I say, okay, but maybe in the afternoon, tell me what times are good. And you have to say, how about three? And you have to say, well, actually, three is not great. So maybe we can do it at four. The problem with that conversation is not only is it six messages, but you have to keep checking your inbox waiting for the next <laughs> message to come back to you, right? Because if you, yeah. if you drag this out, you're like, I don't want to spend four days trying to schedule this meeting. So then if you scale that up to six or seven meetings being uh, scheduled at the same time, those seven meetings might generate 300 inbox checks in a, a two oh. or three day period, right? It's devastating. Simply solved. You say, let's just do a protocol up front. And when it comes to meeting scheduling, there's actually a lot of tools that can implement protocols for you. So I'll use Calendly, uh, which, which, which is what I believe you use, um, or Schedule Once or Acuity or the shared meeting feature in Outlook or whatever. But I'll use one of these tools that allows me to do one message scheduling. You know, like, yep, we should meet. I think we should do it next week. If you go here, all of my available times are there because I know you're busy. So just choose the one that works best for you. One message. Yeah. And again, it seems minor in the moment because in the moment, it's very quick to just shoot off an email that says what's next. But you have now saved 300 email inbox checks in this scenario. So that's that's an example of a protocol. But anytime there's an interaction that is frequently occurring that leads to a, a, a consistent outcome, ask mm -hmm. the question, can we do a little work up front to figure out how to do this interaction with very few messages? Yeah. So there's one thing I do want to ask you about, because I remember you you bringing up the fact that, you know, <clears throat> often you are trying to force other people to change uh, in response to the way that you're going to change it. And the reason this struck me in particular is I had this guy just the other day with this exact example, and I gave him my Calendly link um, and I gave it to him twice. And he said he replied back saying, please pick a date and time. And I was like, OK, 
let me know if this date works. And I'm like, wait a minute, you didn't get it, um, which was pretty interesting to me. But I, I think the, the more important question here is when you're dealing with people um, who you have to get you know, on board, even the notion example of getting our, our you know, ad sales team to start using it, I'm having to change their behavior a little bit. Fortunately, they are um, you know, adapting very quickly, but I don't know that that's always going to be the case. Yeah, the, the social engineering aspect, the social dynamic aspect of moving towards these processes and protocols is very important, right? So I, I, I get into this a little bit to try to understand how to succeed. And there, there's a few different things that are relevant here. Um, one, I say really clearly, don't really, don't really explain what you're doing. Like, let's say you're in a team and you don't really have control over your process. You work for a big employer or your boss doesn't like Cal Newport. Uh, don't explain what you're doing. Don't have an autoresponder. Don't say here in, in order to serve, you know, my team better, I'll be blah, blah, blah. Uh, just execute. And if someone gets upset, then you can apologize. But it's better to apologize to the small number of people who are actually upset than to teach a lot of people that there's a reason they should be upset. So, you know, no. don't announce it. Uh, two, just be careful in your presentation. So, like, the way that you get bosses to use Calendly links is you say, like, look, I know your schedule is more crushed than mine. So what I did is I just put all of my available times in here so you can choose one that works best for you, right? That you're just flipping it around. So it's like, oh, look, you know, Srini went through a lot of trouble to make my life easier. <laughs> okay. All right. I appreciate that. Uh, three, when working with teams, uh, buy-in is crucial, right? And this isn't all these in, in traction or extreme revenue growth or E-Myth Revisited, Work to System. All these books say the same thing. If, if you're trying to build a, t- a process, to have everyone involved in building the process, to empower everyone to help polish the process makes a big difference versus just saying, hey, by the way, here's what we're doing now. Uh, so that that's important. And then finally, um, be okay with sometimes people will be upset, right? I mean, it's yeah. like the, in the Ford's assembly line would occasionally get stuck because someone dropped the wrench at the steering wheel station. That's fine. In general, it's producing cars 100x faster. We, we sometimes, you know, some personalities in general really overemphasize and overestimate uh, that fear of like, well, what if this upsets someone? You know, I never mm-hmm. want anyone to be upset. I never want to, or, or what if I, uh, I miss a client opportunity? Because the way we have this set up is like, I can't just respond right away. And what if a client gets ignored and say, hey, you didn't, I didn't hear from you, so I'm moving on and I'm mad or something like this. And just being comfortable with that. Uh, the assembly line is, was expected to get stuck five times a day. That was just part of what they, they, they factored. And so you can think about the same thing when putting the in place process and protocols. There will be a certain number of annoyances and small bad things that will happen. That's part of the cost that you're factoring in into becoming 100x more productive. Let's talk specifically about email protocol, um, non-personal email protocols and short message protocols. And I'll, I'll give you an example because I had the autoresponder, like you said, and it actually was just leading to a lot of unnecessary crap in my inbox. Um, and the one in particular that um, you're probably all too familiar with, at least for me, it is uh, you know pitches from potential uh, book publicists for authors that they're working with. And it's the same stupid galley letter every time I can tell that like no effort went into thinking about how this is a fit for us. It's just the same letter that everybody gets. Um, and I, I even wrote an article on medium about how book publicists should pitch, you know, potential podcast guests. And, you know, we've worked with the same publisher and they still don't listen. They do the same thing. Um, I think the only reason they didn't do that to me with you was because you and I happen to know each other. Yeah. Um, so with that sort of, with that as sort of the example, let's talk about uh, non-personal email protocols and short message protocols. Well, so once you have this mindset of, oh, the issue is the hyperactive hive mind, let's think of better ways to implement all these processes that define our business. It opens up tons of innovation, 
that when you're just in the hive mind, none of it seems relevant. So one of the big things that pops up, I just think it's a cool idea, is you realize, huh, this notion, for example, that we even just have email addresses associated with names, is that really the best way to do it? Like we know email like POP3 or SMTP is a great protocol for sending information asynchronously, sending files asynchronously. But this notion that it's going to be, you know, Cal at georgetown.edu, which, by the way, is not my email address, so don't try to use that. <laughs> but, you know, that it's like a person. And that's what an email address is associated with. When we think about that objectively, it causes a lot of issues. It just means everything comes into the same undifferentiated inbox. There's there's sort of no structure or control over what comes in or people's expectations. It's a huge source of stress. And so, like, imagine instead an alternative in which, well, we use email for communication, but our email addresses are associated with, let's say, clients. If you're a client of ours, great. We're going to give you an email address at our company, client name at company.com. Every communication you need to have with us, send it to that email address. You know, now there's no one individual who feels like, oh, there's this interpersonal obligation I have. A client has sent me as a person a message and I have to get back at them. There's an expectation. It's much more abstract. Imagine having yeah. an email address for a team. You know, so now I'm the HR department and there's like some new forms I need uh, my just developers to fill out, like tax forms or something. Instead of blasting everyone individually, there's actually like a uh, administrative administrative announcements or request for this developer team email address. And all of it goes mm-hmm. there where it goes into a common inbox and maybe the project lead kind of aggregates this stuff and pulls it out into a, a like a memo that you go over for 10 minutes in the weekly status meeting. Right. It just opens up a lot of ideas. And again, you're not going to have this type of thinking until you actually realize like, oh, here's the whole game. We have a bunch of processes. Yeah. We want to implement these in the best possible way to minimize back and forth. And suddenly everything's on the table. Mm-hmm. It's funny you say this because I, I remember Dan Kennedy has this wealth attraction seminar where he talks about email and he had a really funny saying. He said, I separate my email into two categories, people who are trying to give me money and people who are trying to get me to do something. And I remember thinking about that and I said, you know what? I think I'm going to do the same thing, except I'm not going to separate email that way. I'll separate the email addresses that way. Yep. So I literally have an email address for people who generate revenue and another one for everybody else. Yeah. And then you can put, so once you, once you've, uh, you have different addresses, they're not just, see if an address is a person, then you have the standards of personal interaction dictating all interactions, right? So like in general, in polite society, if we're in the same room and I start talking to you, uh, you're not going to ignore me, <laughs> you're, you're, you know, whatever. Um, we personify email addresses that are associated with names. So if it's just, you know, uh, Srini at Unmistakable Creative or something like this, like, I don't know, I'm sending you a pitch, I'm sending you a galley, I'm sending you a request, I'm trying to get you to jump on a call, I'm trying to get you to do a coffee. It sort of feels like I'm just talking to this guy and it's kind of rude if you don't answer me. But if you get rid of that connection to a person, you can completely reset and build from scratch the expectations. So if there is a uh, coffee request at unmistakablecreative.com address, like, oh, all right, this is where I do coffee requests and there's some notes here about here's how it works. Uh, I only do one a month, send this information, you, uh, whatever. I don't, know, I don't know how it works. Or here's like galley request at almostequalcreative.com. Here's how it works. Fill out this form, send this information. Uh, if it's a fit, we will uh, blah, 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 right? When it's not associated with a person, you can build the expectations from scratch. So I do this. I, I don't have a, a publicly accessible general use email address as a writer. If you want to send me like interesting links Our news clips, I like that, but I have an address called interesting at calnewport.com. It's not Cal, it's interesting. And it has some rules. Like I I, I appreciate people sending me things. I can't respond to the messages, but all these things get looked at. No one has any expectations I'll respond. If that was just Cal at calnewport.com, no matter what I said, people might say, why is this guy ignoring me? 
that's rude. So there's these huge advantages you get when you when you disconnect these communication channels from individuals. Wow. Okay, so let's talk about this whole short email idea because uh, you know sometimes people send me really long emails and I send like one sentence responses and I almost have to always put PS don't you know um, see my brevity as as you know something mean as a lack of uh, caring about the email you've sent. I just you know have more important things to do than write emails. Well, what I liked about this idea, so the, uh, different people do this. I was talking about this former university president that did very short emails. That was his his protocol, but. It was the thinking behind it that caught my attention. So basically, his his thought was, if I can't do this in a short email, by default, we're going to move to a different mean of interaction, right? So it's not that everything is going to be a short interaction. It's that only things that can be handled with a short interaction are going to happen on email. Uh, and everything else will get moved to, we need, you need to come to my office hours. We need to set up a meeting with my assistant. We need to talk about this and do this back and forth. His main insight, which I think is correct is that email is a fantastic medium for broadcasting information or sending electronic files. It's great for that. It's very bad for uh, conversation. It's very bad yeah. for let's go back and forth and figure something out. So that was his simple rule. Uh, if I could answer it real quick, I will. And if I can't, then I'm going to push you towards another system. So we can get you on the phone and get you in the office, but let's work this out in real time, which I think is very a, a very astute way of trying to think about navigate the value or, or lack of value with when it comes to email. So the examples he gave is like, uh, there was, he's a university president. So there was construction projects going on. And for whatever reason, there was like a lot of things he had to approve, you know, like the color of the tiles they were using for whatever. And he's like, Oh, email is great for that. They could just shoot it to me. What do you think about this? A or B? Do you like this glass? I don't know. Because like, yeah, no, good. But if it was, we have a problem, we have a problem with our sprinkler system. Like it's unclear what system we should use because the codes have been changing. He would be like, okay, I can't resolve this in two sentences. So we're going to talk on the phone. And anyways, I thought that was a great heuristic. Yeah. Um, well, let's, let's talk um, about the specialization principle because I, I really like uh, the things you said about outsourcing, like outsource what you do don't, don't do well. And, and it reminded me of, of this experience I was having, you know, probably a couple of months ago, we were launching a new uh, service or new product. And I was trying to mobile optimize landing page. And my roommate comes to me and he's like, you're the CEO of a damn company. Why the hell are you trying to optimize a page for mobile? He said somebody on Upwork could do that for $20 in 10 minutes. Yeah. Well, this is the real tragedy, I think, of the IT productivity revolution, right? So starting, I'll start this with personal computers emerging in the late 1970s. And then through all the tools that we got on computers, you got word processors, you got spreadsheets, you had uh, company intranets. So now through interactive web forms, you can enter information and uh, and gather information. And then ultimately we get things like email, right? So we had all of these tools, technology-based, that made specific business tasks lower friction or quicker. And so the, the promise was, oh, we'll become a lot more productive. Didn't happen. And I'm, I'm talking about the economic metrics here. I actually am working on an article. I mean, it might be out by the time this airs, but I, I, this article based on the book for Wired that gets into the history of the personal computer and talks about how there's all this excitement. Like when we put computers on people's desk, it's going to have this huge productivity revolution because when we put computers into the back office, when we moved records into databases, when we got inventory control systems, it was this huge boost in e economy-wide productivity, right? Huge win. So we figured we put these on individuals' desks, uh, productivity is going to rise. It stagnated instead. Throughout that whole period, it stagnated. A lot of research was done. Uh, it turned out the computer wasn't making people more productive, right? Uh, and I think something similar happened with email. So, so what was going on? Well, we did the wrong thing with these productivity-enhancing tools. 
What we should have done is say, oh, this is great. This means that the support staff we have in place that supports the executives and coders and ad copywriters, uh, we can now make them even more efficient. So now our typing pool can use word processors instead of typewriters, and they're going to be even more efficient. And you know, maybe we'll even need less people in the support staff to do the same amount of support, or we can offer even more support with the same number of people. What we did instead is we fired the support staff and said, oh, great. <laughs> this is now easy enough that you can do it yourself as an executive. Like you, You're not going to mess with carbon paper in your typewriter, but you can use WordStar. You know, um, you're not going to take messages on the phone because you have too many phone calls, but you can answer email. And it actually brought down our productivity. So we made things easier, but then we moved more things onto every individual's plate. And so their overall ability to produce value went down. Wow. And so I'm calling for a return to specialization. I actually think the the more efficient configuration of all this attention capital is you have everyone doing less, but doing what they do better. And part of the way you do that is you have to take a lot of this crap off of people's plates and you probably have to hire dedicated people just to deal with the crap. And with all these high-tech productivity tools, you can now do this with many fewer people, but don't use productivity innovations to say, great, now everything is just easy enough that we can technically put it on your plate. It is technically possible for you to do this now because time is finite. And now Mm. you've just taken time away from, they could have uh, landed another client or written another legal brief, right? Uh, So that's the way I think we need to get back to specialization. We all do too much. We should all do much less. Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny you say that. So, like, I I realized um, one, I don't even know how to edit the podcast anymore it, it, because you know we had gotten to the uh, process so dialed in that my editor Josh and I, I mean, we've gone weeks without talking to each other, and he still manages to publish every day without any input from me. The only exception to that has been when he got appendicitis a few weeks ago, where and luckily he had created a video to show me exactly how to publish an episode. Um, yeah. So th- that was, but the thing you, you say that um, really struck me in this section was this idea of simulating your own support staff. Um, what did you mean by that? Yeah. So in the short term, let's say, okay, they haven't read Cal Newport yet and you still, you still don't have support. And you still have a bunch of, uh, a bunch of crap on your plate. Simulate specialization. What I mean about that is just bifurcate yourself into two roles. There's like me who, who does the, the value producing stuff and there's me that does all the support stuff. And treat those almost like it's two different jobs you have, right? Like you're working two part-time jobs. So how you, how you, where you keep track of your tasks and your systems and everything for the support work is separate from uh, where you keep track of tasks and your systems for when you're doing your main value producing work. So when you're in your value producing mode, you're pretending as if you have a staff, you know, and you operate that way. And then when you switch over to the support staff mode, then you're like, you're like, how do I do this as effectively and efficiently as possible? And you don't mix the two. And by not mixing yeah. the two, I mean like on the scale, you know, maybe you do a uh, half day in one mode, half day in another, one day in one mode, one day in another. But there's like a really clear separation between those two things. Now you're saying, hey, it's the same amount of total work. Why does it matter? But you get a lot more done because A, you don't have that context switching cost of interleaving all the crap with the value producing stuff. And two, when you imagine your support life as a separate job, it's much easier to start to build out systems, to start optimizing. Yeah. Hey, let's get some Airtable going here. Let's get a little bit of Zap going. Let's get a Calendly app here. Let's get some Trello boards. Let's get some automation. You know, it beca- that becomes a whole game over there. And the footprint, the footprint of all that work begins to really shrink. And so until you can actually get that support staff, which I think we should have more of, but we don't right now, yeah. pretend like you have two different jobs. 
Well, it, you know, it's I, I think about this from the standpoint of something as simple as, you know, publishing a blog post because our blog posts are, you know, sometimes upwards of five, six thousand words because we do these long, detailed guides. They require illustrations. Um, and I, I sat down and mapped it out. And I was like, the only useful thing I do in this entire process is write. Um, and so I started thinking, I was like, oh, adding the images, putting it up on, you know, WordPress, you know, putting it into different publications like Medium. And I finally just outlined it and I handed it off to an assistant. And I realized now, you know, I finished writing and I'm like, all right, I've run this through Grammarly. I've read it myself. I've done all my revisions, go through proofread it, you know, set it up to be published and, you know, go from there. It, it makes, you know, this type of thing makes, uh, makes a difference. And I, I think it's just easy in the moment to say, yeah, but it's, it's fastest right now in this second to just answer this email, you know, or just mm-hmm. to do this. Right. Uh, but we have to have that longer term view of like, what's the drag of having to do all the stuff surrounding writing this blog post uh, times two each week, week after week, after week, after week. In the end, it's a really large, it's a really large cost. It's a really large drag. I actually think that one of the exciting things that's going to happen and also kind of scary in the future of work, if we look out at a longer time frame, this is where a lot of workplace AI research is heading, where we can essentially have a presidential style chief of staff that's not a real person, but it's an AI agent. Mm-hmm. And it's going to completely change work because, I mean, now imagine in your situation, like the, the, the AI agent, which is talk to the AI agent of your publisher and of your editor, and they've all kind of communicated together. It just kind of tells you, like, the, the best thing for you to be doing right now is writing. And here's here's some background, you know, here's your source material. I gathered it for you. Just write. And when you're done, I'll take it. Don't worry about it. Okay, and you're done with that. Okay, we need you to make a decision on these three things, right? Just like a Leo McGarry in the West Wing. We're all going to have Leo McGarry. It's going to be a productivity revolution, right? Because that's the end game. By far, that's got to be the best way to take the uniquely human aspect of human intelligence and produce value from these brains. The very best way to do it is to just have the brains do nothing but the actual producing value part. That's where AI is going to get us, which is both exciting and scary. And I almost feel like my book is like, okay, but while we wait for that, how how can we get close to that in the meantime? Well, it's funny that you say that because to me, I think it it also takes us back to so much of what you've talked about um, in So Good They Can't Ignore You so many years ago. Because, uh, you know, I've been writing uh, this book about or this blog post about the hidden dangers of following your passion, largely, you know, based on, you know, things you talked about in that book. But I think that to me, if when this happens, it's going to reveal who has skills that are valuable and who doesn't. Well, that's the scary part, right? So, so that and also uh, we're going to have a surplus at first. You know, because my my contention is that we are we are incredibly unproductive because of the hyperactive hive mind, incredibly unproductive, right? And I think it shows up in the the economy wide metrics. I mean, non industrial productivity has stagnated throughout this period that we made communication lower friction and more ubiquitous than ever before in human history. We didn't get more productive, and I think we would have actually lost productivity if not for the fact that we added hidden second shifts in the morning and the evening to try to make up for the lost productivity during the day, right? So we are we're leaving a huge fraction of our potential on the table. If overnight, you know, Google has some breakthrough and we all have, you know, Leo McGarry bots, uh, you're going to need a fraction of the people we're using now to get the same amount of work done. You know, two professors are going to publish what five used to publish before. One lawyer is going to handle what three lawyers were able to produce when they had to check email once every six minutes, right? In the short term, that if that happens too fast, it's going to create a giant surplus of attention capital, and, you know, I don't know where it's going to go. So it could open up brand new markets, which I think could be very exciting. 
or it could lead to a creative worker recession because, hey, we we only need a third as many workers to get the same amount of work done because you're not doing email all day. We're going to be way more profitable if we fire two thirds of the workers. You know, those of us who thought that AI won't bother us because our work can't be automated. Well, don't be so sure because we don't have to automate what you do. We just have to make it a lot more productive and you have a similar sort of crunch. Um, I tend to be more optimistic. I think this change will come slow enough that we will adapt and reassign this attention capital. It'll expand markets. It's what happened in the industrial sector. We had a 50x increase in productivity in the industrial sector from uh, 1900 to 2000 as we got much, much better at building things. We didn't end up firing all the industrial workers. Instead, uh, we built the wealth on which the entire developed economies of the world uh, were founded on. So, you know, good things actually happen. Probably that will happen in knowledge work too if we explode the productivity but it's a really interesting thought experiment, and I don't think we talk enough about it. Sounds like you have a subject for another book. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, yeah, I've got, I've got a subject for a bunch of – I don't think anyone wants to hear me opine on economics, though, I guess. So what I'm trying to do there is just convince economic types who are smart to write about it. Uh, amazing. Well, I mean, as always, you have packed this with you know just nuggets of brilliance and wisdom that – somehow always lead to very, very noticeable and tangible changes in our lives. Um, so uh, I want to finish with my final question. Uh, and you've heard me ask this before, so I'm curious to see you know, what it'll be now for the fifth time or fourth time. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I, sh- I should probably go back and remember what I said before, or maybe, or maybe it's more instructive if I don't, so I can, I can see if it's uh, consistent. Um, I, would, I would guess my answer has been pretty consistent. I mean, uh, to be to be so good you can't be ignored makes someone unmistakable. You know, going all the way back to that book, so good they can't ignore you. And what I mean by that is that like, there, there's something you do, you do well. You've done the practice, you've built it up. It's important. You're good at it. You focus on it. You don't get too distracted by other things that are less important. And you know, you get after it and execute. And here's the thing I do well, and it's important, and I do it, and it makes a difference. You know, you can't go wrong. You you do that you are going to have an unmistakable presence, I think, in the world. Hmm. Amazing. Well, uh, as always, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us, to share your story, your wisdom, and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out uh, about the new book and, and everything else you're up to? Uh, so calnewport.com, you can find out the book, uh, and that's where my, my uh, longstanding blog is housed. The new edition since the, the last few times I've been on here is that uh, I podcast. So I have a podcast called Deep Questions, where I, I take questions from my readers on all of these type of topics, and we get into it. And so you can also you can also hear more about these details on my, uh, my Deep Questions podcast. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.